Good morning, everybody. It is so great to see you all. There are some new faces, not necessarily new visitors, but uh, I think I see some people I recognize. Even though you're wearing a mask, uh, it's great to see your eyes and to have you with us this morning. Welcome to all you who are joining us on our live stream. Uh, if you are here for the first time uh, in person or on the stream, we encourage you to let us know. Um, introduce yourself to us in some way. If you want to leave a comment on Facebook or send us an email at info at we would love that. Um, as we have been doing every week that we've been having gathered worship, I've been going through some protocol to make sure we all know kind of what the safety measures are here at the church. So I'm just going to try to do that briefly here for us uh, at the church this morning. A reminder that there's hand sanitizer stations all throughout the church. Please make use of those. Uh, the bathrooms are open except for the third floor, so feel free to use the facilities. Follow all the protocol that's posted around. Um, a new announcement, the church library is open if you need to go in and would like to find some resources out of the library. Uh, please be courteous about the space. We're asking for one family or one person in there at a time because it's pretty tight quarters. Um, but uh, make sure that you... We wanted to make sure you knew that that opportunity is open uh, for you today. Um, we also want to encourage you after worship, even though it is really hot outside, please take your fellowship and uh, your time talking outside the sanctuary and, uh, and, and take it outdoors. We just want to try to keep our, our exposure to one another's uh, aerosols and everything as, as uh, routine as we can and try to make sure that we're being conscious of that. So uh, feel free to take... Uh, conversations out front on the front porch. There's a lot of shade out that way um, or even down into the, the uh, spaces down towards the outside out in the parking lot. Um, it just helps us. We also have some uh, cleaning that happens after the services. So I just want to make you aware of those things. Uh, the other thing is that uh, we wanted to make sure everyone knew that the church signups always begin the Monday after worship. So tomorrow will be the signups for next week's worship service. Um, Sanctuary fills up pretty quickly, so if you are hoping to get into the sanctuary and you've seen it every time you go to look, it fills up, just make sure you jump on there uh, earlier rather than later in the week. We still have plenty of room in Rankin Hall. It's great to see how many more families are coming into Rankin. It's really exciting. Um, and the other thing I wanted to let everyone know is that uh, if you've been in the sanctuary for a while, you know, think about maybe giving someone else a turn, uh, finding another space to worship in once in a while, so that way uh, others can get in here and enjoy time in the sanctuary as well, just thinking of your brothers and sisters in Christ. Um, that's all that I have as far as the protocol uh, is concerned. What I'd like to do now is invite you to stand for this morning's call to worship, which is coming from Psalm 19. Psalm 19 is a beautiful psalm that describes just how wonderful God's Word is. And uh, it is uh, definitely a reason that we are gathering this morning on the Lord's Day to come and to receive uh, encouragement and strengthening of our faith from God's Word. So listen to this call to worship. The law of the Lord is perfect, reviving the soul. The testimony of the Lord is sure, making wise the simple. The precepts of the Lord are right, rejoicing the heart. The commandment of the Lord is pure, enlightening the eyes. The fear of the Lord is pure, enduring forever. The rules of the Lord are true and righteous altogether. More to be desired are they than gold, even much fine gold. Sweeter also than honey 
and drippings of the honeycomb. Moreover, by them your servant is warned, in keeping them there is great reward. I'd encourage you to please be seated as Luke and Carrie share their gifts of music with us, help us to reflect on the deep love of Jesus this morning. This is a good one to hum along to. What a great reminder it is that it is through the love of Christ and what he's done on the cross that we come before God in worship this morning. And um, if we were to continue reading in uh, that psalm that we began worship with, Psalm 19, verse 12, there's a wonderful question that is offered by the psalmist. The question is, who can discern his errors? We know that it's through looking to Christ his perfect obedience to his Father in heaven, the way he perfectly displays God's glory to us, and looking at God's word, the perfect law of the Lord, that we can begin to have some understanding of how we fall short of God's glory. And so it's in this time of our time of worship, we're gathering together, where we make use of prayer, and we um, acknowledge those areas where we are in need of God's grace and forgiveness and filling up. So would you join me in prayer this morning? Father in heaven, as we reflect on Jesus and think about 
just how good He is. How He spoke with such clarity on matters of righteousness. How He displayed the fullest measure of integrity to who God is. Because He was the Son of God and is the Son of God. Father, we look upon Christ and we look upon the Scriptures and see how You've commanded Your people to live. How You want us to be uh, interacting with one another. How You want us to be demonstrating Your goodness in the way that we live. And we just see so many ways, Lord, how we fall short. How we don't meet those standards. And Father, there's probably many ways in which we do not even know how short we fall. Things that we think are absolutely okay to do. Things that we think that we think are, are fine to think that just offend you and are not glorious. Don't, don't bring glory to your name. And so, Father, we want to, in this quiet moment, we want to offer up our individual prayers of confession silently. Just confess to you, Lord, our sorrow and, and confess those things that we have done that we know are not pleasing to you and ask for your forgiveness. So, Father, please hear our prayers in this quiet time. Father, Psalm 19, your word continues, and it says, Declare me innocent from hidden faults. And Lord, for these sins which we've tried to conceal and now lay bare before your throne, Lord, for sins we don't even know we've committed, we ask that you would help us to rest in the assurance that we can be declared innocent, forgiven, pardoned, because of what Jesus did. We ask that you would help us to rest in that knowledge, to know that your anger does not burn upon our hearts and, and burn against us if we are confessing our sins and seeking to walk humbly before you and acknowledge our need of your grace and love. So help us to rest in the assurance of that pardon today. And Father, we ask for your help as we continue to uh, live out the call as your children. We ask that you would help keep us from presumptuous sins. That sin would not have dominion over us in the areas of our life where we're struggling. We pray that you would give us victory, Lord. That your Spirit would help us to flee from temptations. And Lord, as Psalm 19 closes gives us perfect words to pray. Let the words of our mouths and the meditations of our hearts be acceptable in your sight, O Lord, our rock 
and our Redeemer. Father, as we come to your word, we ask that you would use it to teach us, to shape us, to make us useful in your kingdom, to help us be the essential church. So as we come to your word, we ask for your blessing upon this time. May it be true communion with you. May your spirit speak strongly through my words this morning and through uh, the reading of your word so that we might be strengthened for what you would have us do as your church here at Church of the Atonement. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, this morning's children's message is uh, I'm going to be talking about something that some of you may have never experienced before, but it was something that when I was a child, I experienced a lot. Every year, in fact, I would experience this. Now, this year, probably uh, not many families are doing this, but sometimes uh, this is happening, I'm sure, somewhere. Uh, Maybe it's happening in bits and pieces. You might all be wondering, what's he talking about? I'm talking about something called a family reunion. Have you ever been to a family reunion? Have you ever got a chance to meet all the different family that you have, all the brothers and sisters of your mom and dad's brothers and sisters and, and your grandmother's brothers and sisters? You meet all these people. <clears throat> I remember on my dad's side of the family when I was growing up, we would have the annual Mowen family reunion. Now, my grandfather was the youngest of 16 kids. <clears throat> so, when we would go to the Mowen family reunion, there were people I had no clue who they were. I remember, you know, first couple times that, that I can remember being there, <clears throat> I can remember some experiences where people act like they know me, and I have no idea who they are. But, you know, maybe they've seen a picture, or maybe they've heard about me, or they know my parents, and, oh, this must be Ryan, you know. That's kind of what we found out at the family reunion. You go to this event, and there's all these people that you don't know, and you're told by your parents, these people are your family. They are related to you. There's one thing that all connects us. We're all Mowans, either by blood or by marriage. Uh, We're all Mowans. And so, you know, the first time there, you don't know many people, but you get to play some games. You get to have some food. You find out who makes the good food and the good desserts. And you really get to know them. And then guess what happens? Next year you go back and you know a few more people. And maybe you meet some people you didn't know before, but you get to know them. And soon the family reunion starts feeling a little bit more like family. And the reason I bring this up is because that's kind of what it's like whenever the church gets together. You know, this might be, uh, you might be at an age where you come to church and there's a whole bunch of people you don't know. You don't know their names. You don't know where they're from. You don't know anything about them. But if they're here at church, chances are you have a connection to them. And it's not because you have the same last name, but it's because you all know Jesus. And through Jesus, God tells us that the church is our family. And that's a special relationship. And so whenever we think about our family relationships, when we think about the church, you know, family, it's an important relationship. Whether it's a mother or brother or sister or cousin, an aunt, a grandma, any of those things, that's a relationship that's really special. And it's one that we should cherish. Now, that's not a word we use a lot, but I talked about that a couple uh, months ago as we were going through one of our sermons This word cherish means it's a relationship that's really special and we can be very thankful for it. And at the same time, 
we should also try to protect it. It's so special, we don't want anything to, to mess it up or to break it up. And that's the way our relationship should be with our family. And what we understand from Scripture is that's also how things should be with our church family. That we should get to know our church family and understand how lucky we are to have people around us who have gifts of music and gifts of teaching and they want to help us know Jesus more and more. And as we get to know them, we're going to, it's going to be important as we grow to, that we always protect that relationship and we always understand how special it is and that we're thankful for it. So we're going to be talking a little bit more about this idea of the church being a family today in our big message. So for all of us who brought our Bibles with us uh, this morning, I would encourage you to turn to Acts chapter 2. We're going to finish up the book of Acts in our series, Essential Church. Not the book of Acts, Acts chapter 2. We're going to finish that up, <laughs> uh, beginning in uh, verse 42. This is, um, as I said, our fourth week. Last week, we looked at the essential response of the church or people coming into the church, which is repentance. It's the essential response to the message of uh, that Jesus' apostles, that they gave witness to, through the Scriptures and the Holy Spirit. So we've seen that the church is essential because God has made it essential. He's called the church to be witnesses of who Jesus is and how it is that we can become God's people. And so we see the apostles fulfill that mission with the Scriptures and the Holy Spirit, and we see them... Um, give this very clear message of who Jesus is and what Jesus has done. And then last week we looked at that essential response to the message, which is repentance through faith. Repentance takes place when God graciously acts and gives us an understanding to see the world as he sees it, to see our sin as he sees it, and also to see ourselves as he sees us in Christ. And so today we're picking up just after 3,000 people come to faith in Christ and the church keeps growing. And what we're going to see today is we will see the essential elements of worship. We are going to see how essential true worship is in the life of the church. If God is going to use the church to be his witnesses and the church is going to continue to grow, this is the church growth plan. This is essential. And it is the worship that we participate in that is so essential. And so we're going to see Luke provides this summary of what worship was like in the early season of the life of the church. Uh, some will look at this and say it was the age of innocence where there was no sin and, and nobody had any troubles or trials and, and everybody, uh, you know, it just seems like it's a really blessed time. And what's happening is it is just the grace of God breaking in and just flooding the world with His grace. And so if you... Uh, can look with me now to verse 42. We're going to begin, I'm going to begin reading and you can follow along. Listen now to God's word from Acts chapter 2. And they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and the fellowship, to the breaking of bread and the prayers. And awe came upon every soul, and many wonders and signs were being done through the apostles. And all who believed were together and had all things in common, and they were selling their possessions and belongings and distributing the proceeds to all as any had need. And day by day, attending temple together and breaking bread in their homes, they received their food with glad and generous hearts, praising God and having favor with all the people. And the Lord added to their number day by day 
those who were being saved. It's really interesting and helpful to remember that in the beginning of chapter 2, the people that experience this, this amazing sign where the Holy Spirit floods the apostles and these different languages are being spoken, the same people that are responding to Peter's sermon of, with repentance are described as devout Jews. Remember that. That's going to be important. But it's really interesting as we see the very first words in verse 42. They were devout Jews, and now it says, and they devoted themselves now to new things. So devout Jews, but now they have a new devotion in the ways that they are experiencing worship. We see four essential elements or practices that they devote themselves to. The first one is the apostles' teaching. In Jewish tradition, It was often the tradition that you would have rabbis or different people who teach in the synagogues. There would be a a passing down of the teaching tradition. So the interpretation of the Old Testament and how you would interpret those scriptures and teach people and encourage people, it would be something that is passed on. And what we're seeing here is that these new believers are devoting themselves to learn the teaching of the apostles. What is that? Well, the apostles had been taught by Jesus. So they were experiencing all of Jesus' parables, Jesus' teaching on the kingdom. They were also experiencing all the times where Jesus interacted in public forums with the Pharisees and the scribes and with other people who tried to pop quiz Jesus and catch him off guard, like the rich man who tried to justify himself. And so the apostles are probably teaching all of this to the church. They're probably reiterating these things to the early church. But not only this, remember Jesus at the end of Luke Uh, we see that Jesus opened the apostles' minds and and showed them how through all the Old Testament, it always talked about him. So not only is it Jesus' immediate teaching that uh, that they are now giving to the church, but also they're showing the church, as we saw in Acts chapter 2, how all these Old Testament scriptures are being fulfilled through the ministry and work and person of Jesus Christ. And so what we're seeing is these new converts are are, are devoted to, to this new teaching and receiving this new instruction. And we know that this is what they were teaching because this is what the New Testament contains. The New Testament is God's Word preserved for us, inerrant, inspired, infallible, but it is the teaching of the apostles. We see in the New Testament letters that the apostles wrote to churches to instruct them about what is right and what the ways of Christ are, what the church should be like. We see histories like Luke and Acts and the Gospels that record much of Jesus' teaching that they felt was important to reiterate over and over again. And so the church still continues in this tradition. We still read the scriptures of the New Testament and absorb the Old Testament through the lens of the New Testament. If anyone wants to know what an Old Testament passage means, the best way to look for it is to see, is it ever talked about in the New Testament? And we still practice this tradition of the apostles' teaching by hearing the Word of God preached as we gather for worship like we are now on a Sunday morning. I come to these scriptures, and I am not bringing a new word, but I'm taking the word of the apostles, the word that preceded the apostles from the prophets and the law, and I'm saying how all these things are found true in Christ. And I'm echoing that and encouraging and exhorting this congregation. And that's happening all around the world on days like today. So they devoted themselves to this tradition, they devoted themselves to that in, in uh, worship. 
It was an essential practice of hearing the Word of God preached and taught, and we still do that today. Another aspect of essential worship is this thing that we see called in our English Bibles, the fellowship. The fellowship. It comes from a Greek word uh, that is koinonia. Everyone say koinonia. All right, you're a lot more awake than the first service group was. Glad to hear it. It's probably a product of the time and the coffee intake. Koinonia is a word that, interestingly, Paul uses several times. He uses it in a couple ways, as we'll see in a moment. But in the books of Luke and Acts, it's only used once right here. What does this word mean? Koinonia, as your Bibles uh, interpret, the fellowship. It uh, signifies a close relationship, a communion. That's kind of its general meaning. But it was also used in Roman culture and also by Paul to talk about the communion that one has with God. Roman culture, it was the communion that one has with a God, but Paul takes that term and talks about in the Lord's Supper, we remember the communion we have with the true and living God. So which one is Luke saying? Is he talking about the close relationship that's like a family? Is he talking about this connection that we have with God? Because of the context of what we see coming after this, with the breaking of bread, likely it's both. That this idea of koinonia fellowship is a special understanding, a unique spirit-led relationship that the church has to understand that because of Christ, I have a special standing before God. Where I am his child, I am forgiven. And also, I now have a special and unique and eternal bond to everyone else who is baptized in his name. Everyone else in whom the Spirit of God dwells is now my brother or my sister. And like we said in the children's sermon, that is kind of the idea of family. It's something that is to be cherished. It's something that we are extremely thankful for. It's a way that God blesses us with His grace by giving people with all kinds of gifts to help encourage us to grow up in maturity of faith. And at the same time, it's something we need to desperately protect. It's very interesting to see that Luke includes this idea of the fellowship here. We'll see unity is an important theme throughout all the New Testament. So what united these devout believers before, what all brought them all from all over the world to Jerusalem was their Judaism. You know, they all had a covenant sign if they were men. They were circumcised. They came to Jerusalem. They followed the law according to the letter of the law. But they were from different countries. They had different languages that they spoke. But their Judaism is what kind of united them. Now there's a stronger bond that unites them, one that goes beyond their cultural or even religious cultural affinity. It's the indwelling of the Holy Spirit, which now baptism signifies. And it's a very deep commitment. It's the same fellowship that we try to foster and encourage today. It's the same relationship through the Holy Spirit that we have with one another that is to be cherished Right? We're to be thankful for the gifts that God has given us, the people that we do life with, and we also need to be protecting that relationship because without unity, the church cannot grow, as we will see. It is an essential element of our worship. It's about being family. And sadly, very unfortunately, there are many churches, many Christians who are willing to put unity on the chopping block for things that are non-essential or not holy. Where we're willing to compromise 
our unity and the, the purity of that relationship for things that maybe are a little trivial or things that make uh, us not even look like we love the Lord. You know, I'm talking about sin. That happens a lot. But the koinonia was something they devoted themselves to. They protected this fellowship because they recognized it was a divine, uh, it was a God-given relationship that they now had. The third thing that they devoted themselves to, we see is the breaking of bread. We see through the rest of Acts chapter 2, later verses, that they were daily attending temple and breaking bread in their homes. But this description of breaking bread has this definite article in front of it, and it also seems to be in the context of devoting themselves to teaching and understanding that they have this special connection. And so many people believe that the, the fact that it's a definite article, this isn't just an ordinary meal that they're sharing together. This is talking about a very special meal that we call communion or the Lord's Supper. It's a meal that signifies the koinonia fellowship. It's a meal that confirms and reaffirms the reality, the spiritual reality that we are connected to God through Jesus Christ and that we are connected to one another through Jesus Christ and that it was part of their worship to enjoy this meal together. Communion is a meal that reminds us that the fellowship that we have with God and with one another is sealed eternally in the cross. And so you can imagine whenever the church is being the church and a brother sins against another brother in the church, whenever that happens, we come to this meal and it reminds us that that relationship can be healed because of what Jesus did on the cross. He paid for that sin on the cross. And therefore, if there is repentance and if there is uh, grace, that, that relationship can be restored. This meal reminds us of that reality. It also reminds us that because this is our church family and not just random people we are connected to because we happen to come to the same building, that we can't just treat them as if they're not family. And this is a practice that the church still holds to today. It's a visible sermon of the grace that we've received, both corporately, that means as, as everybody has received it, and individually. So whenever I take communion, I am understanding that Christ has done this thing for me, that he has shed his blood and given his life for me, for my sin, that I might know the Father. And as I watch all of my brothers and sisters partake of this meal, I understand that that's what connects us, that he's done that for all of us, and that there's a union there that needs to be understood and discerned. The fourth thing that they devote themselves to is simply the prayers. And I would posture that these are particular prayers raised together in worship on behalf of one another, on behalf of the kingdom, in Christ's name. We're not really told very much about prayers. There's not a whole lot that can be said about this because Luke doesn't go into details about what the prayers are. But because these practices seem to be in the context of worship, it's likely that these are public prayer times, maybe intercessory prayer times, um, and it's prayers that are now grounded in the reality of Jesus. Prayers that are offered in Jesus' name. 
And we still pray in that tradition of praying in Christ's name because we understand that those prayers are answered and received and heard based on his righteousness. So as we look at these four things, the apostles' teaching, the fellowship, the breaking of bread, and the prayers, why is it these things? Why is this essential to worship? You know, one thing that is missing from this list that we probably would have expected was, where's the singing? Where's the music? Now, it doesn't mean they didn't sing, but Luke's trying to make a point here about these essential elements of worship. These are essential for a very important reason, which I'll get to in a moment. Remember how I said it's important to know that these were devout Jews. These were devout Jews who are now devoting themselves to a new way. So as devout Jews, these are, as I said last week, they're church people. They're the people who do things by the book. They were the ones who were following the Old Testament, the Old Covenant law. They were the ones who were giving the tithes. By the way, that was tithes, plural. In the Old Testament, it wasn't just 10% tithes that God required. There were three tithes that God required. Annually, it would work out to be about 23% uh, because one of the tithes happens every three years. One was to support the priests in ministry. Another one was to support the feasts of ministry. So those times when you had to stop all of your working and focus on worship. And the third one, every three years, was to support those who had need, widows and orphans, every three years. So every three years, you actually gave a lot that God required. Very interesting. So they would have been completing these tithes. We see they made pilgrimage to Jerusalem, right? So they're coming for those feasts. They would have been observing the law, practicing it as it was required. They would have been offering the atonement sacrifices, the grain offerings, all the things that they were supposed to do. They were devout. And yet, what we're seeing here is that they weren't truly worshiping to the fullness that God was preparing his church to worship. Why do I say that? Old Testament is filled with scriptures that talk about how people go through the rituals of sacrifice, and yet there's something missing in what they're doing. Scriptures like Hosea 6.6, For I desire steadfast love and not sacrifice, the knowledge of God in my people rather than burnt offerings. Amos 5.21-24, I hate I despise your feasts. I take no delight in your solemn assemblies. Even though you offer me your burnt offerings and your grain offerings, I will not accept them. Peace offerings of your fattened animals, I will not even look upon them. Take away from me the noise of your songs and the melody of your harps I will not listen to. But instead, let justice roll down like waters and righteousness like an ever-flowing stream. Or Micah 6, 6 through 8. What shall I come, uh, with what shall I come before the Lord and bow myself before God on high? Shall I come before him with burnt offerings, with calves a year old? Would the Lord be pleased with thousands of rams or 10,000 rivers of oil? Should I give my firstborn child for my sin, the very fruit of my body for the sin of my soul? He has told you, O man, what is good. What the Lord requires of you is this, 
to do justice, to love kindness, and to walk humbly with your God. The point of all these scriptures, the point that's being made throughout the whole Old Testament, these are scriptures that seem to describe a devotion to following the letter of the law, but the point is being made, your heart is not in it. You're not able, because of your sin, to honor me with these sacrifices. You can only honor and worship me with a shadow of things that are actually pointing to a time when I will provide the sacrifice that makes it possible for you to truly worship me, as Jesus described in John 4, in spirit and in truth. We'll get to that in a moment. All these scriptures show that God desires worship from his people that comes from the heart, that comes from an understanding of who he is an overflow of the grace that he's poured into their lives. But what we know of Israel is that no matter how much grace God gave, they still fell short. And God was frustrated with the patterns of their worship that didn't really match the inward feelings of their emotions towards them. So before their conversion, these devout Jews, they practiced worship to the letter of the law, but they didn't know Jesus. They didn't receive him as the Messiah, and therefore they did not know the fullness of grace that God has, disp- has uh, poured out on his people. But now, after experiencing God's grace, they heard the gospel, they are filled with a spirit of repentance and able to respond and receive it. They devote themselves to being filled up and, and encouraged and feasting on this grace more and more through these four things. In John 4, Jesus has this interaction with the Samaritan woman at the well, and they're having a conversation about, you know, where's the true place for worship to take place, right? And the Samaritan woman says, you know, you say it's in Jerusalem, but our fathers believe it's over here. And Jesus says, look, truly I say to you, one of these days it's not going to matter where you worship because God's people will worship in spirit and in truth. Jesus' point is that worship is not going to be tied down to a place. It's going to flow out of the hearts of his people because God's spirit will dwell inside of them. Worship is not going to be contained to the grounds of the temple. It's not going to just be categorized with the fulfillment of all of the requirements of the law. It's actually going to overflow just as the grace overflows. And it will be a witness to the world. And it's very interesting to look at these four things and kind of think about them categorically and understand what, what happens whenever we devote ourselves to the apostles' teaching and to koinonia fellowship and the breaking of bread and communion and the prayers. What happens? In the church world, we categorize these things as means of grace. Means of grace is a, is a phrase that we use to say, this is how God strengthens and grows his people. These are the ways in which God uh, infuses us with faith. These are the ways in which God helps his church to grow. It's God's church growth plan through the teaching of truth, according to the apostles' teaching, through the fellowship that we have because of what the Holy Spirit has done. We celebrate that and reaffirm that covenant with one another and with God over and over again through communion. And we know that God hears us and we pray boldly, as we'll see in the next week, through the prayers. 
These are activities that God uses to strengthen his people and expand his witness. This is why these are essential. If the church essentially exists to be a witness and we have a message to deliver, then we must fill up and understand the truth of the grace that we've received in Christ. If this gospel is good news, we must understand it in deep ways so that we can pour out grace in the world. Put grace on display as God intends for it to be. What's interesting is, oftentimes I don't hear fellowship or koinonia described as one of the means of grace. And I would argue that it absolutely is because it's where the gifts of grace are given to the church. To experience God's grace, the gifts of God in teaching, music, compassion, mercy, like spiritual gifts, those are gifts of grace that he has given to the members of the body of Christ, the church. And so as we interact with the body, there are means of grace that are alive and working through us as we encourage and build up one another. So the apostles' teaching, filling up with Scripture and understanding the truth through the lens that it is all Christ-centered. Fellowship, that what we have with God and what we have with one another is a Christ-founded relationship. Communion, this idea that, that everything that we have has been bought through Christ. Those uh, prayers that we offer up in Christ's name, these are the means of grace. They devoted themselves to these things. And what we see is that God filled their hearts with an understanding of his grace, and it poured out and manifested itself in some amazing ways. What do we see in the last uh, part of, of these verses? We see radical generosity. Not just a tithe to help the poor. People are just selling possessions. They're just liquidating assets because they are so overwhelmed with the reality of what God has done for them through Christ, and it changes them. As they understand the Scriptures and see the plan of God coming into existence, it changes them, and they just liquidate the assets and begin sharing to anyone that has need. We see radical hospitality. They're sharing meals. Remember, these are people from all around the world, different languages and cultures. Judaism connected them before, but now Christ connects them. And so you can imagine that there's fellowship happening. This kind of utopian description that we have here seems to be describing that there's no partiality. They're not being separated based on where they're from or their gender or any of that stuff. They're having fellowship together that has no boundaries uh, whatsoever. That the only thing that is bringing them together is that they see one another as a brother or sister with equal standing at the foot of the cross. And the other thing that we see that kind of pours out of their uh, devotion is this continued cultural witness. They are daily attending the temple. Many scholars believe that whenever the, the day of Pentecost took place, it happened around the temple grounds or in the temple complex. And so this is the hub of, of life in Jerusalem. Many people are always coming around the temple and being around the temple. And so they are continuing their public witness. And what do we see happen? As they devote themselves to these means of grace and it pours out into their life as they continue worshiping through God, through radical generosity, hospitality, and this witness to the world, 
they have favor with all the people, and the Lord daily adds to their number. It's an economy of grace. When you think about how it started, Jesus called these you know, disciples pretty imperfect people. He teaches them. He completes everything at the cross, and then he commissions them to be witnesses. I'm going to fill you with the grace of my Holy Spirit, and you're going to preach. They preach, devout Jews come to faith, and they devote themselves to learning more about Jesus through these practices. These means of grace grow them up. It overflows with generosity and hospitality and witness, and more people grow. This is God's church growth plan. And it's amazingly simple. It's feasting on his grace over and over again. Before their devotion was likely out of duty. Now their devotion is a response to grace. It's an overflow that comes from their heart. And it's very clear that truth and grace hit them in the deepest parts of their soul because we can see they're getting very loose with their money and who they associate with. I mean, think about the position that that stuff takes in our life. It's a picture of the economy of grace. Essential worship, these elements are essential because they fuel evangelism. They fuel church growth. They fuel discipleship. These are the means that God uses to grow his church, both to grow us into the likeness of Jesus Christ to be his witnesses, and to bring others in. It's part of our mission. And so therefore, these are essential. It's been very interesting that we, um, oftentimes in church, we encourage people to stand and to respond to preaching or to uh, prayer time or whatever with singing of a song, you know. And sometimes stand and sing with the good news. And if the sermon hasn't been that uplifting... Uh, that can be a little bit harder. Sometimes you get a little half-hearted singing. Sometimes you get some great singing. And I think this time feels especially weird, right? We feel pretty muzzled, uh, quite literally. (laughs) We feel muzzled. I think this passage is really encouraging because what it tells us is that worship is not bound to this service. It doesn't stop here, right? You can sing in your car. In fact, worship can overflow and manifest itself in ways that are far more radical than just responding by a song. It overflows from the heart. This passage encourages us because while God enjoys hearing the praises of his people, he enjoys it when his people praise him with their hearts. And so the way that we speak, the way that we live, the way that we uh, think and, and treat people, it demonstrates to our community, it demonstrates to our neighbors, it demonstrates to our family, our spouses, that we understand a measure of God's grace that he's given to us. That's worship. You know, as we can't sing in this time, it's been really uh, strange as we wrestle with, you know, how do I express myself? How do I express my love for the Lord, you know, in times when I want to shout it from the rooftops or sing it. There's a great song for this time, and it's one I grew up uh, listening to, so it dates me a little bit. Um, but it's The Heart of Worship. Matt Redman, I think it came out 
sometime in the 90s. Um, first verse goes like this. When the music fades and all is stripped away and I simply come longing just to bring something that's of worth to bless your heart. What a fitting lyric for this time when we have music that we can't participate in and how do we respond? I'll bring you more than a song for a song in itself is not what you've required. You search much deeper within than the way things appear. You're looking into my heart. Acts 2 is recording the hearts of God's people. They're filled with an understanding of his grace. They've been freed to truly worship. Worship that extends beyond the walls of the temple. Goes above and beyond what's required. Knowing that they can't even outgive the measure of grace that God has given on their behalf. There's no way they can outgive God with their generosity, with their hospitality, with their witness. Because of what God has done. It's very easy for us, because we're weak, it's very easy for us to get in these patterns where we forget what parts of worship are essential because they cultivate the faith and growth for the church. They cultivate the mission of the church. It's easy to forget that God wants to use us to grow his church, to be his witnesses. And so it's helpful to have a word like Psalm 2, where we see these essential elements for worship are Christ-centered preaching, Christ-founded unity, a Christ-focused meal, and Christ-based praying. And by these means of grace, true worship flows. And God uses it to grow us and to bring more into this family. That's a good thing for us to reflect upon. Now, before we pray, I do want to acknowledge something. I know what many of you are thinking some of you are thinking, all right, so we got the preaching, we got the koinonia a little bit, we got the prayers, where's the food, right? Where's the breaking of the bread? Where's this special meal that helps us remember the valuable grace that God has given to us as we eat bread and drink of the cup? And it's been really hard, I know, for a church especially to go from weekly communion to nothing. For how many months has it been? Seven months? Six months? I don't know. Loose track. So I'm excited to be able to let you all know that we are planning to offer communion as part of our worship on September 13th. Um, for those of you at home, maybe that's a Sunday you'd be interested in coming and joining us here at the church. We're going to try to have all the spaces available. We uh, have a safe way of having the communion distributed beforehand. And uh, we'll be giving details for that. That's going to be uh, something for everyone gathered here to participate in. And so we are very thankful that uh, we've reached a point with this pandemic where we know that this is pretty safe to do. And we think it's important to bring it back, um, at least on a monthly basis to start. So second Sunday, that's September 13th, both services, we will be having the breaking of bread. Uh, we will be having communion, and we'll be remembering and be nourished uh, in our faith because it is an essential part of our worship, and it's been very hard uh, to not have these aspects in this season. So let me pray for us now. Father, we thank you for how your word instructs us of the most important things. 
We thank you for how it, uh, it speaks to us and encourages us in uh, the ways that we are to grow. We pray, Lord, that you would uh, just help us to understand more and more how your spirit is at work through these means of grace how it strengthens us for the work that you call us to do, to be your ministers, to witness uh, on behalf of, of the name of Jesus Christ. Lord, we, uh, we ask for your forgiveness if we ever dilute worship to being just a, a mere set of activities or, or responses limited in a, in a service. We ask, Father, that you would enlarge our vision for worship, that we would see that worship flows out of this service into our week in the ways that we live. And we pray, Lord, that we would fill up with an understanding of your grace so that we might pour it out and be obedient and that you might increase the uh, expanse of your kingdom. And uh, we might know more and more who our brothers and sisters are in Christ. Lord, we want to come now in a time of prayer because we know this is essential, Father, to hear how you answer prayers. Lord, we rejoice and give thanks for the ways in which prayers have been answered in seasons of life in our church where people have experienced a a moment where there seems to be no way and you, Lord, have made a way. We rejoice and give you all the glory. You are good. You work in ways that we cannot understand or explain. And I mention this, Father, because as we come to a moment of offering our prayers to you, I know that some of us need that glimmer and reminder of hope that you are a God who is faithful to your people. Though you don't answer prayer necessarily how we ask it, Father, you are faithful to answer it according to your wisdom, and you promise that you are good to your children. You give your children good gifts, that you work all things for the good of those who love you and are called according to your purpose. And so, Lord, I mention these things for us as we enter into a time of offering up our individual silent prayers to you so that we might have a mustard seed of faith to believe you can work and are working on our behalf. So, Lord, in this quiet moment, hear our prayers. Father, on this day that you call us to stop working, stop worrying, to stop uh, laboring and, and trying to keep and hold everything together, you ask us to rest and to trust. Father, we need your help to do that. As we offer these prayers to you, give us a peace that passes our understanding. Help us to meditate on who you are and to be filled with an understanding of your power and love, to trust and truly rest and celebrate that you've got this. Father, for these requests and others on our hearts, we lift them up to you in the strong name of Christ. And all God's people said, Amen. Amen. We encourage you to stand. Feel free to hum along as we reflect on these lyrics 
and uh, worship in our hearts to speak our Lord. What a great reminder. The church is essential. God is still using us, each one of us, to be his witnesses. And it's important that we devote ourselves, just like they did so many years ago, to the essential things of worship. And as we go, may the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, the love of God the Father, and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with us now and always until we meet again. Amen.